This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of May 16th, 2022. And how are you, Emily, this fine week? It has been quite a week, Kyle. Um, We are still dealing with the pediatric splinter saga um, that I think I've mentioned a couple of times. Um, and uh, on top of that, we've got some some local politics happening in my town. Um, I'm in a town where the town votes on the school budget, which uh, Kyle reminded me is not actually every town. Um, nope. uh, and uh, we the 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 town voted against the school budget, which is not generally done. Um, that's that's unusual and not great. Um, so so things are things are kind of tense a- around mm-hmm. here. Um, sure. yeah. yeah, but I, but I'm okay, you know. Um, how about you? Uh, I'm doing fine. Uh, I'd. A series of long nights at the school this week, and mm. that's okay. Graduation is Tuesday, so I'm almost there. Uh, Yay! Yeah, but other than that, things are things are fine. I'm just just worn out, mm-hmm. as of really most everyone nowadays. Yeah, so. most people are. <laughs> we're all there, yeah. but we had a week of Jeopardy. We sure did. We're going to talk about it right now, starting with Monday, May 16th, when we have the contestants Divya Badri, a software developer from Coal Valley, Illinois, Nick D., a photographer from Los Angeles, California, and Ryan Long, a rideshare driver from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, whose one-day cash winnings are $18,800. And the Jeopardy! Round categories are Face the Music, A Horse with a Name, How inventive. That's our island. It's getting windy. And TFW, that feeling when. Very internet savvy there. Mm -hmm. Really cemented its its, um, connection to, you know, our contemporary moment with its its reference to Wayne's World. Mm -hmm. Yes. A movie which came out. Oh, 30 odd years ago. Yeah. I mean, also, it was an SNL sketch before it was a movie, but I, the movie is what I tend to think of. 1992, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nailed it. Um, we had a fun, incorrect guess of Seabiscuit, followed <laughs> by Seabiscuit the cor- being the correct response on the next clue to come up. That was fun. Seabiscuit mm-hmm. was the correct response for the $800 level of a horse with a name. In, in 1938, in one of the great races of the century, this grandson of Man of War beat War Admiral in a one-on-one match. Yeah, that was, that it, was Seabiscuit. Yeah. yeah, yes, that was Seabiscuit. Uh, the other clue where Seabiscuit was an incorrect guess was about the novel and film War Horse. And I think Divya was just like rang in and blanked and then just tried to give any response, maybe. Yeah. Um, that was... Yeah. That was what I thought might be happening. Yeah, I, I don't know if she actually thought that was the the correct response, but she just gave a name of yeah. a horse. Yeah, 
Um, Daily Double number one is in the TFW category at the $1,000 level, and Ryan finds it at the 13th pick. He has 2600 to Nick's 1400 and Divya's 1600 He wagers 2000 and gets the clue, you're realistic or emotionally stable, like a circuit safely connected to the earth. And he gets that one correct. It is grounded. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Ryan's at 8,600. Nick is at 4,000. Divi is at 400. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, Swedish history. That book plagues me. Skeleton crew. Close to the vest. All the responses are just before or after vest in the dictionary. Let's gamble. And I've got a big bank roll. But it's roll like... R-O-L-E. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All movies that have to deal with banks or, yeah, really just banks. Only a couple yeah. were bank heists. Mm-hmm. There was a, okay, in the Let's Gamble, there was a, a triple stumper at the $1,200 level. The clue was these two green numbers in roulette give the, ed- or give the house an edge. And that's zero and double zero. And I realize that they are two, they are two separate places, right? That the ball can land. I have a hard time classifying them as two different numbers because mathematically both of them are zero. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, and, and that's and in my mind, like even when I was thinking about it, I was like, well, there's there there are the zeros. Is there another like what else is green? I don't yeah. know what else is green. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, so I, I don't know that i would have gotten there but yeah yeah that it was just weird to me i, I mean I, I i see how it could be argued that they are two different numbers mm-hmm. but i i wish maybe they would have worded it a little bit differently maybe something referring to the spaces on the roulette wheel or what do you, i don't know what you call the spaces right like mm-hmm. marked with marked with these two I don't know, something like that. Sure. That, that's yeah. why they're the Jeopardy writers. Right. Yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, they're not two numbers, right? If it had been like, what is on the two, you know, the two spots the two on the green, roulette, yeah. the two green spots on the roulette wheel, then zero and double zero feel like they are, they are distinct indicators, but they're not actually two numbers. Right. Yeah. I'm entirely on the same page you um the two thousand dollar level of that book plagues me a flu pandemic leads to the collapse of civilization in this novel by emily st john mandel later an hbo max miniseries i haven't seen the hbo max miniseries but i did just read station 11 and oh boy the beginning's a little traumatic particularly in recent times for people who are currently living through a pandemic but whoever those happen to be it's a, it's a very compelling novel, though. I uh, I really, um, I don't know, enjoyed doesn't seem quite right for a, like, post-apocalyptic, like, it, it's, mm-hmm. I get what it's you dark, mean, but yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, it was a, it was a compelling read. Nice. Daily Double number two is in the Swedish history category at the $1,200 level. It's pick number nine. I enjoyed this category. Mm-hmm. Ryan finds it. He is at 11,000. Nick is at 8,000. Divya is at 800. 
he wagers uh, just 2,000. And he gets the clue. The warrior King Charles XII did this in 1708 with 44,000 troops. As military wisdom would suggest, it didn't work. Uh, and he had no idea where this was coming from. He guessed what is knight them. Uh, but that was invade Russia. Mm-hmm. You never start a land war in Russia. Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three is in the skeleton crew category at the $1,600 level. And Nick finds this one. She's at 10,800 to Ryan's 13,800 and Divya's 2,400. Uh, she wagers 3,000 and gets the clue. This bone fits into the acetabulum, the cup-shaped cavity of the hip. She tries, what is the pelvis, pelvic bone, um, but they are looking for the femur. And she immediately says, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of gets what they were asking for, but yeah. a tad too late. Uh, so at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Ryan is in the lead at 16,200. Nick is up there at fourteen. 1,600, and Divya is at 4,000. And we get the final Jeopardy category, the National Park Service. And the clue, the USA's smallest national park is a 91-acre site on the Mississippi River, home to this 630-foot landmark. Divya was not able to offer a guess, uh, and she wagered 700. Nick got it correct with what is the St. Louis Arch or the Gateway Arch. And wagered $65.99, going up to $21.199. And Ryan also got it correct with what is the St. Louis Arch, betting $8,000, which is not a cover bet. Mm-hmm. But enough to stay above Divya's double up if he got mm. it wrong. Huh. Yeah. Which is really interesting because Nick got it right, but also bet to stay above divya's double up huh yeah so ryan were it worked well right uh-huh uh, to make to make the bet that wasn't a cover bet <laughs> because of where divya was and nick bet that way mm-hmm. rather than just going for it which is interesting that's yeah. an, an interesting strategy yeah it worked huh. it did it worked for it worked for him this time although that is one of those like you know, future contestants take note kind of moments, right? Like mm-hmm. Ryan did not make a cover bet. Keep that in mind. Yep. Yeah. So it makes it more likely that you're um, going to possibly be able to go all in, which normally is not the right move from second place. You're going to assume that first place is making a cover bet, but if they might not be, you know, maybe you should, maybe you should go all in. Um, Anyway, on Tuesday, May 17th, we have the contestants Justine Lake Jedzenak, a museum educator from Oyster Bay, New York, Jason Smith, a head of risk operations from Scottsdale, Arizona, and Ryan Long, a rideshare driver from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, whose two-day cash winnings total $43,000. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, the American Red Cross, Poets, Indigenous Peoples, Tool Time, Pairs Edition, My Name is a Palindrome, and talk to the hand. I knew all the poets or the, yeah, I knew all the correct responses for the poets category, which I know is not a big surprise. Yeah, well, la-dee-da. Yeah. Um, did you recognize the Gil Scott Heron 
clue. I feel like we had a learned league clue question about the revolution will not be televised. I mean, I recognize that that line. Mm, Yeah. After it's put together, but I wasn't I wasn't able to connect that in my brain when Mm -hmm. the clue came up. Yeah. But we did have Robbie Burns at the four hundred dollar level because it is Jeopardy. So right. There's something wrong if they don't have a Robbie Burns mm-hmm. question in a poetry category. Yep. Yeah, Gil Scott Heron was as far afield as we ventured from, like, kind of the standard Jeopardy canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, Burns. We had Milton and T.S. Eliot uh, with a reference to Prufrock. Just, just, you know, just know your Prufrock. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they wanted to know... In what allegorical poem Edmund Spencer coined the word blatant? Uh, that's the Fairy Queen. If there are other things you're supposed to know about Edmund Spencer, no, there aren't. Not for Jeopardy. <laughs> not for Jeopardy. Um, not for Jeopardy. Yeah, I, I momentarily was like, oh well, I don't know. You know, probably the Fairy Queen. It's just it's the Fairy Queen. It's, it's that's that's all the Edmund Spencer I think Jeopardy's ever going to ask about. Yeah, just put it down and leave it at that. Yep. I know we talk a lot about knowing your Canadian geography, mm-hmm. but the uh, the thousand dollar level of Indigenous peoples uh, was most of the Torres Strait Islanders actually reside in this northern Australian state and its Cape York Peninsula. Uh, Jason got it correct. He was seemed like he was guessing. Uh, it's Queensland. Um, there are only seven Australian states, I think, mm-hmm. if Tasmania counts as a state. They're very big. Uh, it's it's easy to remember, so take some time to learn Australia as well. Yep. And also, in case it ever comes up in trivia, two states in Australia are named for Queen Victoria. One is named Victoria, and the other is named Queensland, because when Queen Victoria was like, so what are you going to name this new state? Uh, I wish I could remember the exact thing, but they, I think they were going to call it like Cooksland or something like that, after uh, I think after Captain Cook. And she was like, mm, how about you name it after me? And they're like, but we already have a Victoria. She's like, just call it Queensland. So they did. <laughs> also, Queensland is flooding a whole bunch right now. So oh. keep that in mind. Keep that in like your thoughts, too. Like, yes. Lots of lots of bad nature stuff in Queensland. Ooh, okay. Uh, Daily Double number one is in that indigenous peoples category. Just a couple clues above uh, the $600 level. Jason finds it at pick number seven. He's at fourteen hundred. Ryan's at two thousand. Uh, Justina's at zero, and he wagers everything. Gets the clue. The Chakma people are the largest indigenous group of this country, once known as East Pakistan. And he gets correct with what is Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And Jason actually ended up running that category, uh, just kind of out of order. Nice. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Ryan is at 9,200. Jason is at 6,400. Justine is at 1,200. And the double Jeopardy categories are military history, countries in the U.S., water, water everywhere, remembering the ladies, movie title before and after, and scoring a TD. Uh, Each correct response begins with T and ends with D. I really felt for Ryan on the $2,000 level of 
movie title before and after. Uh, the clue there was Allied Prisoners Tunnel Out of a German POW Camp in a Disney movie about kids with magical powers. He responded, what is the great escape from which mountain? And that was incorrect. They were looking for the great escape to which mountain? To which mountain? He had, uh, he was, he was right there, you know? Mm-hmm. Just got the direction wrong. Yeah. I don't know Escape to Witch Mountain really at all. I haven't watched it since I was a kid. Yeah. He did get the $1,600, $1,200, and $800 levels uh, in that category. So watch out for him on the movie categories. Yeah, he made up for it for sure. Yep. Water, Water Everywhere turned out to be about places that water has been found other than planet Earth. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was a fun kind of hidden implication of the theme once I put it together. Mm. I assumed it was just going to be a category about water in general. <laughs> Should you drink it? Yes. What is yes? <laughs> they had a triple stumper at the $2,000 level. This U.S. telescope named for a German astronomer looked for extrasolar planets that might contain water. You don't need to worry about anything beyond the German astronomer there. It's mm, the Kepler telescope. Yeah. Um, there, I mean, there were and have been other German astronomers, but if Jeopardy's asking you about a German astronomer, it's probably Kepler. Because, mm-hmm. like, you know, Copernicus and Brahe were not German. Pretty much any of the other big names were not German, so... Yeah. Just just throw out Kepler, and if it's wrong, be like, meh, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unless you're an astrophysicist, probably not expected to know it. Yeah. All right. Daily Double number two is at the $1,200 level of scoring a TD, and Ryan finds it at the 20th pick. He has 10800 to Jason's 14800 and Justine's 1600 he makes a very bold $8,000 wager. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah. If he misses, he's going to drop down to 2800 with 10 clues left on the board. Um, that doesn't seem like an impossible recovery, right? At that point, Jason would have a lock if they stopped play right there. But like, you know, I could, it's, it's not, incon- it's not inconceivable, but if he gets it right, uh, that really positions him well. Um, he gets the clue. An increase from $20 to $200 is this. And he gets it right. It's tenfold. So he takes the lead away from Jason. Very impressive. Yeah. yeah it's a good move and uh, a good pull. I was like, I, I did not get to tenfold, which, I mean, obviously it makes sense once it's said. But yeah, uh, remembering the, the category was was good there. And Daily Double number three is in the Water, Water Everywhere category. It's at pick number 25 in the $1,600 level. Uh, Justine finds it. She is at 3200 Ryan is at 18800 Jason is at 14800 And she wagers 2200 which I, you know, I, I think is fine. You're so far behind with so few clues left on the board, you don't want to necessarily bet it all and end up not in Final Jeopardy. So. Yeah. Uh, she gets clued, this dwarf planet is about 25% water, which could be handy for the goddess of crops it's named for. And she gets correct with what is Ceres. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so at the end of the double jeopardy round, um, Ryan is in the lead with 20,000. Jason's at 16,000. Justine's at 6,200. We have the final jeopardy category literature and the clue, a contemporary review of a novel by this man said he commands attention as a kind of literary James Dean. Justine tried who is Salinger. She's wagered 2201. I'm not sure exactly what she's going for yeah, me with that wager. Um, but she looks like she's so far behind, but Ryan at least is going to have to make a pretty big bet to cover. Um, to cover. And so like Justine, even though she's trailing by almost 10,000 is not entirely out of contention, depending on how Jason decides to play it. But uh, Salinger's not correct. Um, that drops her down to 3,999. Uh, Jason tried who is Updike. Um, he's wagered 3,500. Uh, Updike is not correct, so that drops him down to 12,500. And Ryan figured it out uh, who is Kerouac, Jack mm. Kerouac. That's who they were looking for. I I didn't know for sure, but I had a sense that, that Kerouac had that... <laughs> James Dean energy. Yeah. Well, I was also trying to think of the time period, right? Like yeah. late fifties. And, and obviously Kara came to mind because I associate James Dean with like driving. Yeah. You know? And I was like, well, on the road is all about that. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah. So Ryan's wager 7,000 that brings him up to 27,000 and gives him his third win. Which again, is not a cover bet. Yeah, that's right. He is not making cover bets here. But it is enough to stay above Justine's double up. Mm-hmm. So that might be his strategy going through this week. Yeah. He's going to have to change it if the people in second place start noticing what he's up to. And getting it right. Yeah. Yeah. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants Audrey Kamsen, a pediatric hospitalist from Los Angeles, California. Adriana Ramirez, a writer from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Ryan Long, a rideshare driver from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Ooh, a lot of animosity there. <laughs> uh, whose three-day cash winnings total around nice, clean $70,000. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. Historic Americans. Beastly book characters. Museums for foodies. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Setting the Broadway stage. And Spotify, with IFY in quotation marks. In the setting, the Broadway stage category, at the $1,000 level, the clue is, as of 2022, it's the longest-running current show with Northern Uganda as a setting. Are there other current shows with Northern Uganda as a setting? I think there are not. Not to my knowledge, but, uh, I mean, (laughs) that does pin it very, very specifically. Very specifically. (laughs) Right? Like... There is no other option there. Yeah. Wait. So, where is the Lion King set? Uh, that would be the Pride Lands. And well, I okay. <laughs> um, which I think is specifically not specific. Right. Like when they were like the longest running current show with Northern Uganda as a setting, I'm like, that is a very weird way to phrase it. If there's not another option. And then I was like, are they trying to differentiate it from The Lion King? But The Lion King has definitely been on Broadway a lot longer than The Book of Mormon. So I don't really know what they're doing here. I'm just finding a way of telling you that it has northern Uganda as a setting. I guess so. Yeah. 
But now that you point it out, yeah, it is kind of strange. It's, it's kind of weird. Oh, it was fun to see um, at the $800 level, Martin the Warrior in the Redwall Fantasy series is a heroic one of these rodents. Uh, he's a mouse. Audrey got that. And like, Redwall doesn't come up a whole lot. I uh, I loved those books when I was a kid. Oh, me too. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I read so many of them. So many. So many of those books. I got really uh, deeply invested in like, you know, what was going to happen next at one point, like, and had caught up to what was currently out. And they were mm-hmm. coming out in the UK before they were coming out in the United States. And I managed to um, convince a family member who had like a business trip to the UK to like, bring me back the red wall that hadn't come out in the <laughs> US yet. Um, nice. Yeah. Nice. As an adult, I have read some red wall books to my son. And I've got to say, the writing that I thought was so finely crafted when I was eight <laughs> does not hold up to my adult standards. Oh no, yeah, that's so disappointing. I, I haven't gone back to them. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Um. Uh, yeah. I, I think mean, yeah. I, I will always have like you know some nostalgia for them, but but yeah, some of some of the dialogue and like the endless descriptions of feasts um yeah i I actually do remember that thinking that even in like sixth grade being like man this paragraph is really long (laughs) Mm -hmm. like there's a lot of lists of different kinds of foods that i don't know what they are i do recall that but yeah oh man yeah yeah i I love those books yeah i think think tagarong was the last one that i read I don't know if I made it to that one. It it was it was like brand new when I was I think I was in middle school. Oh, go find the Twitter account Redwall Feasts at Redwall Feasts. The Redwall Feasts bot um, is is an AI that generates uh, descriptions of food, a la the Redwall series. Uh, let's see. Most recently, barley scones warm and fresh from the oven, spread with beechnut paste and washed down, washed down with tansy wine. Mm-hmm. And eight hours ago, it tweeted, there was steaming hot leek and celery soup with oat bread, followed by celery and leek turnovers. This was followed by a hefty four-season plum cake topped with custard. Hot herbal tea was served along with gooseberry cordial. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it is, I, I mean, I guess my, my objection to the Redwall books as an adult is that, like, an AI could, ge- AI could generate... <laughs> Most of the descriptive writing. Sure. Um, yeah. That makes sense. That's uh, really funny. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely following it now. <laughs> it's, it's a great account. Uh, Daily Double number one is in that beastly book characters category at the $1,000 level, and Ryan finds it at the ninth pick. He has 2,600 to Adriana's negative 600 and Audrey's 2,200. He wagers 1,000 and gets the clue this rabbit relative character shows up at a party in Alice in Wonderland and dips his watch into his tea. And Ryan gets that one correct. It's the March Hare. Alice in Wonderland really has a disproportionate number of rabbit type characters, right? Like how many characters are there in Alice in Wonderland? And we have a white rabbit and a March Hare. But anyway, I, I mean, you're not sure you're not wrong, but also there's a lot more that's weird about Alice in Wonderland than the fact that there are two rabbits. You're not wrong. (laughs) So at the end of the Jeopardy round, 
Ryan's at 8,600, Adriana's at 2,800, Audrey's at 3,200. And we have the double jeopardy categories. You Never Take Me To, Trojan War Handbook, Science, Hodgepodge, TV Comedies by Siblings, and From the Greek Four. Ryan did pretty well in that Trojan War Handbook Mm, uh, category. First pick of the round was that $1,600 clue. Abducted by Paris, Helen of Troy had been the queen and wife of Menelaus, king of this Greek city-state. Audrey got in first and guessed what is Athens. Adriana got in next and guessed what is Thebes. Um, And then Ryan picked it up with what is Sparta. Uh, So Mm -hmm. Helen was from Sparta. Menelaus is from Sparta. And then the $2,000 clue was a triple stumper. This leader of the Greek forces foolishly angered Artemis by boasting of his hunting skills. Ryan guessed who was Achilles, but Achilles was notably not the leader and also, like, reluctant to fight. He just wanted to, like, hang out on the beach with Patroclus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, that was really all he wanted to do, and he was annoyed that people wanted him to fight. Uh, But that's Agamemnon, and uh, a good friend of mine in college insisted that if he ever had a son, he was going to name him Agamemnon. He did not do that. He did not follow through. Has he had a son, though? He has had a son. And it's, oh, okay. He named him Miles. It's like, that's not Agamemnon. Yeah. What are you talking about? That's not even close. <laughs> Ryan also almost ran the TV comedies category. Uh, Audrey got in at the $2,000 level with Sister Sister, uh, but he got all the rest of them. So he definitely knows his movies and TV. Yeah. For sure. To keep an eye out on. Um, Sister Sister at the $2,000 level and Family Guy at the $400 level were the only two that I knew. Mm. I always think it's kind of funny when I only know the um, very top and very bottom yeah. of a category. Right. Uh, Daily Double number two is in that Trojan War category. It's at the $800 level. Uh, Ryan finds it at pick number 15. Uh, this is later than his guess of Achilles uh, instead of Agamemnon. He's at 15,400, Adriana is at 1,600, and Audrey is at 5,600. He wagers 8,000, another another big bet, which I like. Mm-hmm. It's a clue. A prophecy said that Troy could not be taken without this warrior, so the Greeks tracked him down and brought him to the battle. And this time, he gets it right with who is Achilles. And Daily Double number three is in the You Never Take Me To category at the $800 level, and Adriana finds it at the 24th pick. She has 800 to Ryan's 26,600 and Audrey's 7,600. She wagers 1,000. Um, up to 2,000 is allowed here. How much is left on the board at this point? Most of the Greek category. Yeah, so there's like less than 5K left on the board. Ryan's lock is going to be pretty much unbeatable at this point. Um, so how much she wagers is not super important here, but she could have gone up to up to 2000. She gets the clue. Champagne, Illinois. You never take me to Champaign, Illinois, only to this seat of Champaign County. Um, and she tries what is Decatur, but they are looking for Urbana. Uh, so that drops her into the negative. Yep. And it ultimately wouldn't have mattered if she'd gone farther into the red because she wasn't able to get in on the buzzer. So at the end of the round, Ryan is in a locked position at 26,600. 
Audrey's at 7,200, and Adriana is still at negative 200, so she does not play. Final Jeopardy, where the category is Oscar-winning songs, and the clue, Johnny Mercer's lyrics to this 1961 Oscar-winning song once began, I'm Holly. And Audrey got it correct with what is Moon River, referring Mm to Holly Golightly from Breakfast at Tiffany's. And she wagered 5,000. Sure. I mean, she yeah. can wager anything she wants. <laughs> uh, Ryan got it incorrect. He wrote, what is high mom? And he made a big bet of 10,000. So he drops down, but is still the winner. Mm-hmm. And on Thursday, we have the contestants Julianne Cromett, a diversity and inclusion strategist from Atlanta, Georgia. Bradford Pearson, a journalist and author from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Ryan Long, a rideshare driver from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, whose four-day cash winnings total 86600 Um, Julianne and I have not been in touch for, I think, like over a decade now, but knew each other in college. I think we're still Facebook friends. Uh, we have the Jeopardy round categories, Lit Bits, Asian Museums, Containers, The Drugs of Humanity... It's a word, it's a name. Blooperman. That's cute. I had always wondered why we called it an oil derrick. At the $1,000 level of it's a word, it's a name, a 17th century British hangman lent his name first to a gallows and then to this oil well structure used to hoist pipes. So now I know what a derrick specifically is and that it just doesn't refer to the entire like oil rig Mm -hmm. and where it comes from. That was a, that was a nice thing to learn. Yeah. And that was, that was new to me as well. It was um, nice seeing Julianne kind of get, get the pronunciation right before being ruled incorrect (laughs) on the, the drugs of humanity at the $600 level. Uh, the clue there was what an adrenaline rush, this 11 letter hormone discovered in the late 1800s treats anaphylactic shock as it stimulates the heart. Bradford tried what is testosterone. Um, and then Julianne rang in to try for the rebound, added a syllable in there, um, and then corrected herself to epinephrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and got credit yeah yeah she kind of kind of added an extra p or an extra n or something like that yeah but so daily double number one is in the containers category at the 800 dollars level pick number 14 ryan finds it he's at 6600 already uh bradford is at negative 600 and julianne is at negative a thousand so he's got a really good lead he wagers two thousand gets a clue two containers are in the name of this furniture store founded by gordon and carol seagal in 1962. And he gets it correct with what is crate and barrel. Mm-hmm. My mind was thinking crate and barrel, but saying cracker barrel. <laughs> that's different. That's not, that's not, yeah, that's very different. That's not it at all. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Ryan is at 10,600. Bradford is up to 2,600 and Julianne is at 200. And we have the Double Jeopardy categories, the vice president who said dot dot dot. Let's take a world tour. Physics. Welcome to Britain. TV personalities. And starts with A or ends with Z. The A or Z category was fun and I, I got them correct. But that that either or gimmick can can throw you off. Yeah, it was a little tricky because 
it's hard to start with the category if it has either one as an option. Mm-hmm. So I, I find with this stuff, it's just easier to kind of like, what's the first word that comes to mind? Does it fit? Then it must be the one. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. There, there are wallabies on the loose in in Britain, and they are considered pests. Did you know this? Did people know this? I didn't. I had no idea. I, I no mean, I guess wallaby is kangaroo relative. Yeah. Yeah, that's that is funny. Like, that's just funny to picture. And then Mayim said something like, "Yes, they're adorable." It's like, but the clue just said they're pests. Like, they might be cute, but that probably also means that they're like getting, you know, getting into trash cans and yeah, getting into street fights with you know cats and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I mean. And, the squirrels that find their way into my walls and make a racket are also adorable. That's fair. But, yeah. And have you seen possums? They're so cute. Possums are not cute. Who even are you? Possums are so adorable. I think I have a picture of a possum facing off with my dog. I think the possum was yeah. bigger than my dog. And look at, just look at how it looks like they've had all of the, the, the hair plucked from them and the way their teeth are so sharp. <laughs> and I've heard they eat ticks and I'm in favor of that. Yeah. Possums are really good. They're important animals. They just look, they're just oh, you know, ugly. You know what other pests are adorable is raccoons. Raccoons are so stinking cute and also, sometimes we get groceries delivered, and sometimes the grocery delivery people, I don't know what, what happens, but they're supposed to bring the groceries, say, between 6 and 8, but they don't, and then eventually we give up and go to bed, and then, I don't know, they drop them off at, like, 1 a.m. or something, and then the raccoons all get into the, the cornflakes yeah. or whatever. And they deliver them to the raccoons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Raccoons are adorable, though. Um, I saw a TikTok, account, TikTok account of somebody who has, like, a therapy raccoon somebody who's dealing with like like an unusual eating disorder where like their brain has marked all kinds of things as like not food basically um yeah and so like they have a raccoon because raccoons are omnivorous and they're supposed to like serve little plates of like a variety of foods to their raccoon and it is supposed to like get their mirror neurons like going to recognize what food is yeah interesting isn't that cool that is cool. And I wonder, like, yeah, and like, who came up with that thought of like, oh, uh, we need to get you a raccoon, buddy. Yeah. We need your roommate to be a raccoon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we've wandered so far from wallabies. I should probably take us to the Daily Double. That's fine. Um, Daily Double number two is in the vice president who said category at the $1,200 level and Julianne finds it at the 14th pick. Uh, she has 1400 to Ryan's 14200 and Bradford's 5000 She says she has always wanted to say let's make it a true Daily Double. I, I would go for the full 2000 here. I, right. I, yeah. I, like I know, you, I know we all want to say it. Go. But you yeah, you have the chance to make more money. Yeah. She gets the clue. You win some, you lose some. And then there's that little known third category. Take it from me. Every vote counts. Uh, she can't figure out what they're getting at. She tries who is Teddy Roosevelt. But the correct response here is Al Gore, referring to the 
2000 election, which he didn't win, but can't really properly have been said to have lost, per se. Right. Yeah. Um, resolved by the Supreme Court. And Daily Double number three is the last pick in the round in the Welcome to Britain category at the $1,000 level. Bradford finds it. He is at 10,600. Ryan is at 16,200. And Julianne is at 400. And he wagers only 1,000. You, you basically have two choices here, and they're both of them are kind of risky. It's like, do you bet it all, essentially, and try to take the lead going into final mm-hmm. on a $1,000 clue? Or a $2,000 clue. Or do you bet small and keep yourself within striking distance, mm-hmm. even if you get it wrong? Uh, he chose to bet small. And he got the clue. The Normans brought England this title of nobility, later the general term for the lords who fought King John and got Magna Carta done. And he guesses what is Viscount, uh, but that is Baron. The Baron's War, which mm-hmm. I believe I mentioned briefly in my talk of the Plantagenets and the Houses of England. I believe you. Although, but it was a small part of that Although deep dive. I don't recall specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking about King John. It did. Yeah. I think I did, but I might not have. But Bradford stays within, within reach of Ryan. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Ryan's at 16,200. Bradford's at 9,600. Julian's at 400. And we have the final Jeopardy category, The Ancient World. And the clue, new research suggests a device now called the Archimedes Screw helped maintain this one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, Julianne tried what is the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Not not one of the seven wonders, um, but she's wagered zero, so uh, it does not matter. Um, she stays at 400. Bradford tried what is the <laughs> Colossus Rhodes. Uh, Colossus of Rhodes. Uh, that's not correct. Uh, although it is one of the seven wonders. Seven wonders. Um, he wagered ninety six hundred. That is everything, and it drops him to zero. Ninety six hundred is a fine wager in this circumstance because we're, uh, you know, he. <laughs> we're, we're in Ryan's fifth game. Yeah, and we know that he doesn't make cover bets. Yeah. Yeah, and Bradford pretty much has to get it right. We're expecting to mm-hmm. win, so you might as well maximize your winnings. Uh, yeah, if you get it wrong, you're, you're not going to beat Ryan, most likely, um, unless he has made a catastrophic wagering error. Ryan got it right with what are the Hanging Gardens um, of Babylon, of course. He's wagered 3,001. Which, Which is, is a cover, a cover bet. bet. Finally. There we go. Uh, so Ryan makes a cover bet for the first time? I don't know. I think so. I um, think so. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that gets him his fifth win. So uh, he is heading for the for the Tournament of Champions whenever this run ends. Um, mm-hmm. But it does not end yet. Nope. And uh, he showed after that show the the special beaded necklace that his son had made for him mm. that he was wearing. Uh, so, yeah. I like Ryan. Yeah, I do too. Seems like a good man. Mm-hmm. 
And on Friday, we have the contestants Tony Alimi, a postdoc from Ithaca, New York, Limay McClellan, a law student from St. Louis, Missouri, and Ryan Long, a rideshare driver from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, whose five day cash winnings total $105,801. And we have the Jeopardy round categories St. Patrick's Cathedral, South American Cities, What College? That's inadmissible. Um, they're responses that are in that are made up of letters in the word admissible um the farmer and adele (laughs) so orderly with completing all the clues from one category before moving on to another category nice yeah it's clean still wasn't top to bottom left to right but i'll take it yeah I did not remember the name of the farmer in Animal Farm, and neither did any of the other contestants, Mm -hmm. but it was a triple stumper at the $200 level. Did you remember? Yeah, we're related. Uh, Yes. You and Mr. Jones. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 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 I I mean, I did remember, but but that is actually kind of obscure. It... (laughs) It is surprising to me that that was a $200 level. Yeah. Because when you think of Animal Farm, you don't think of the people. Like, you don't think of the humans. Yeah. They are, they are like, off-screen characters that are mentioned in passing. Mm-hmm. I feel like name a minor character from such and such work is just, it should not ever be a top-row clue, yeah. I would think. Yeah, I um, it it really surprised me, especially when like, what are what's Superman's last name was the four hundred dollar clue. Mm-hmm. Like far more people are going to remember that. That's Kent. Yeah, although I I for whatever reason, Kansas farmers, I was like Wizard of Oz. Wait, a boy? Oh no! Like I'm in the wrong. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm way off here. Yeah. Headed in the wrong direction. Yeah. So I, I, I did. I think that if I had had a few seconds to kind of stop, go back, and start over again, I probably could have gotten there. But uh, I did not sure. figure out what the clue was asking about before Ryan rang in with Kent. Mm-hmm. Still, I, I, I still think that that is more gettable than name the the human in Animal Farm. Yeah, absolutely, much more gettable than name the human in Animal Farm. The what college category was so Northeastern, with one exception at the $1,000 level. Mm-hmm. So, so, so Northeastern. What a surprise. Yeah. That's the only place that there are colleges in this country, right? Mm-hmm. That's my understanding, yes. Yeah, mine too. There was a whole category about St. Patrick's Cathedral, which is the one in New York City, uh, which therefore makes it very important for trivia. Very important. Um, very, yeah. But I thought that was that was kind of a fun category. I learned that the uh, one of the altars is uh, designed by Tiffany's, and uh, I think I knew that Andy Warhol had gone to mass regularly. I don't know if he went to mat- mass at St. Patrick's. The clue didn't come out and say this. I thought it was a it was a, an interesting set of clues about St. Patrick's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Daily Double number one is in South American cities at the $600 level. 
and Tony finds it at the eighth pick. He has 1,600 at this point. Uh, Lee May is at 2,000. Ryan actually has not gotten in yet. He's at zero. And Tony makes it a true daily double and gets the clue La Plata and Mar del Plata are cities in this country. And he tries Bolivia, but they are looking for Argentina. Which you can get either uh, geographically knowing that the Rio de la Plata is in Argentina, or also knowing that also Plata means silver in Spanish, and Argentina comes from the Latin for silver. Yeah, that's that's the, the connection that I made. And then I then I got worried that maybe I had, you know, like had faulty reasoning, but but still happened to have a correct guess, you know, Mm -hmm. but yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, the contestants are very close. And um, uh, I found it very sort of satisfying that they were at uh, (laughs) numbers exactly 1000 apart. Uh, Lee Mays in the lead with 5200. Ryan's at 4200. Tony's at 3200. And our double Jeopardy categories are history paintings, their last novel, diseases, some legal A's, A in quotation marks, all the responses will begin with the letter A. One named Oscar winners and adjectives. Those are good adjectives. Yeah, I they mean, were good adjectives. I mean, is fine, but the other ones. $400 level was from Latin for wild beast. It describes a wild, untamed animal, often an unsocialized outdoor cat, and that is feral. The others were also good. Diluvian. Yeah. Pertaining to floods. Oh, it's a good, mm-hmm. good yeah. word. Antediluvian uh, with A-N-T-E, like before, it means like pertaining to the part of the biblical narrative prior to the flood. It's a good one. Mm-hmm. I feel like the frequency with which Lose Yourself and Eight Mile come up in trivia is disproportionate to either the quality or the cultural relevance of the movie. Yes, I don't know. I agree. And also trivia is very white. Yeah. And when we feel like we want to include some hip hop, <laughs> chances are we are going to naturally go to the one white rapper. Uh-huh. And don't get me wrong, Eminem very good rapper. But yes, I agree. It does seem that that comes up an awful lot. It comes up a lot. Way more than it should. Yeah. If we're going to have one hip hop themed clue every, you know, out of every hundred. We're just going to go back and forth between talking about Eminem and talking about Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton. And that's, (laughs) that's, that's what we've got. Right. And that Snoop Dogg likes uh, Martha Stewart. Yeah. (laughs) Listen, we could talk about that. All the time, forever. Sure, that's fine. That's but that <laughs> but we need to not count that as a hip hop question. Yeah, fair. <laughs> I guess we did have a question about that well known rapper Fifty Cents recently. <laughs> you you know what? You're right. That's fair. That's fair. We did we did include a question about Fifty Cents <laughs> about half dollar. <laughs> Daily Double number two is in their last novel. Uh, it's pick number three at the $1,200 level, and Ryan finds it. He's at 5000 Lee May is at 5200 and Tony's at 3600 Any wagers, 2000 Gets the clue, The Reavers is the last novel. He died in Mississippi a month after it was published. And Ryan guess who is Mark Twain, but that's William Faulkner, who you should really associate with Mississippi. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Daily Double number three is in the diseases category at the $2,000 level, and Ryan finds it at the 18th pick. He has 13,400. Lime is at 8,000. Tony's at 2,400. Ryan wagers 2,000 and gets the clue. William Howard Taft was among history's many sufferers of this painful joint disorder Hippocrates called the unwalkable disease. And he gets this one correct. It is gout. Yeah. Yeah. I had a friend who had gout in college. I was like, hmm. I didn't even realize that was still a thing. I thought that was like a medieval disease for all the rich nobility eating red meat and drinking red wine. Yeah. And then I actually learned what gout actually is. Because she explained it, and I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. (laughs) (laughs) Oops. So, at the end of Double Jeopardy, Ryan is back in form at 21,000. Lime is at 12,000, and Tony is at 6,000. Very clean, even scores. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we get the final Jeopardy category on the map, and the clue, it's referred to as the Blue Eye of Siberia. Tony... Got it incorrect with what is the Ural. Uh, I think other side of the country are the Urals. Uh, she wagered 1,006. Lee May wrote what is Lake Volga and wagered everything. I don't I don't know if there's a Lake Volga, but I know the Volga is a river. Yeah. So at least she was getting to a body of water. Uh, and she drops down to zero. And Ryan got it correct with what is Lake Baikal and wagered mm-hmm. 5,000. Uh, which does count as a cover bet, and a little bit more. I believe deepest lake in the world? Yes. Yes. And apparently, I think Mayim said it contains more than 20% of the world's unfrozen fresh water. Could they send a little bit of that over here? We are rather drought-stricken. Oh, this no. Year. Yes. We've had a very, very dry season. Mm. Anyway, Ryan wins his sixth game. Yes, he does. Up there on the Tournament of Champions tracker, and that is the end of the week. We'll see him next week and see if it continues. Mm-hmm. So, this is the point in the episode where we remind you that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash as You can go there to support us financially with even just a dollar a month. Uh, if that is something that you feel is worthwhile to help us offset the costs of simply maintaining the podcast. Uh, and if we make a little bit extra, then we, you know, we can use it toward something with the podcast, whether that's you getting better equipment for ourselves, or uh, if we get enough people supporting us, we might be able to hire an audio editor. Um, but we are not at that point yet. And if we don't get there, then, you know, that happens. But uh, that's kind of what we're looking toward. We're not just trying to I don't know, line our pockets with the, the vast amount of money we're bringing in. Um, but even if that's not something that you want to spend your money on, we do encourage you to uh, look to any of the, the many organizations that are doing good work in our communities and in our world. Uh, so if you do feel so compelled, we encourage you to look to uh, communityjusticeexchange.org, the Stop AAPI Hate GoFundMe and Rescue.org. So, Emily, what are your deep dive guesses? Um, are we talking about invading Russia? We are not. Although now that you say that, oh, that would have been a good one. 
It didn't even cross my mind, but yeah. If it had, you would have gone with it, I think. I, I might have. That sounds really good. <laughs> are we talking about Devil's Island? We are not talking about Devil's Island. Okay. All right. I had a hard time finding a third guess I liked. Are we talking about Faulkner? <gasps> We're not. Oh. We are talking, talking about, any about, of these. about from the Tuesday game. And maybe I threw you off by taking time to talk about it in the when we went through the episode the two thousand dollar uh level of water water everywhere was the clue this u.s telescope named for a german astronomer looked for an ex looked for extrasolar planets that might contain water that's kepler mm, you did throw me off by talking about it nice uh yeah i want to talk about johann kepler or johannes kepler i never really know if it's i mean it's supposed to be johannes but a lot of times I hear people just leave it off. I don't know if it's mm. proper. I don't know if that's acceptable in German or if it's just an Anglo kind of thing. Yeah. But anyway, we're talking about Kepler because I, I know for me, a lot of the names of like historical scientists kind of get muddled together in terms of like, I know their name and I know generally what they're known for, but was it Kepler? Was it Copernicus? Was it Tycho Brahe? Was it Galileo? Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, they all kind of did stuff. Put them all together. They're all the same. Uh, so we're going to talk about Kepler. Awesome. That'll be great. I certainly hope so. So here we go. Johannes Kepler uh, was born on the 27th of December, 1571, and died 15th of November, 1630. He was a German astronomer, mathematician, astrologer, natural philosopher, and writer on music. Hmm. He's a key figure in the 17th century scientific revolution, best known for his laws of planetary motion, and his books Astronomia Nova, Harmonice Mundi, and Epitome Astronomiae Copernicae. And these works also provide one of the foundations for Newton's theory of universal gravitation. I'm going to tr- try to go through his life fairly quickly so that I can really more focus on like his works and impact. Uh, So here we go. Uh, Like I said, he was born on December 27th, 1571 in the free imperial city of Wilderstadt, which is now in Germany. His grandfather, Siebold Kepler, had been Lord Mayor of the city. He had two brothers and one sister in the Kepler family uh, when he was born, and their fortune was in decline. His father, Heinrich, uh, was a mercenary and left when Johannes was five years old and is believed to have died in the Eighty Years' War in the Netherlands. And his mother, Katharina Goldemann, was an innkeeper's daughter, a healer, and an herbalist. She raised the family without without Heinrich around. Johannes was born prematurely, and thus claimed to have been a weak and sickly child. Uh, but everyone was impressed with his mathematical faculties. Uh, he was introduced to astronomy at an early age. At age six, he observed the Great Comet of 1577, And at age nine, he observed a lunar eclipse. In 1589, after going through grammar school, Latin school, and seminary, he attended Tübinger Stift at the University of Tübingen, or Tübingen. I don't know if it's with a G or a J. Mm. Uh, And he studied philosophy under Vitus Müller and theology under Jakob Hirebrand. He proved himself to be a superb mathematician and earned a reputation as a skillful astrologer casting horoscopes for his fellow students. During that time, uh, he learned both the Ptolemaic system and the Copernican system. 
and became a Copernican at that time. And he he defended heliocentrism from both a theoretical and theological perspective. At the end of his studies, he was recommended for a position as a teacher of mathematics and astronomy at the Protestant school in Graz, and he accepted in uh, 1594. Uh, In 1595, he was introduced to Barbara Mueller, a 23-year-old widow with a young daughter, and uh, they began courting. Barbara's father was initially opposed to the marriage, but eventually relented, and after some probably interesting drama, they got married. They had two children who died in infancy early on in the marriage. Uh, In 1602, they had a daughter, Susanna. In 1604, a son, Friedrich. And in 1607, another son, Ludwig. Uh, So this is when his research career kind of gets started. Um, The first, his first publication was um, Mysterium Cosmographicum in 1596, uh, published a little over a year after his arrival in Graz. That publication kind of helped secure his marriage uh, and also put him kind of out there as, as someone who was making claims and putting original research out about about astronomy and also astrology. At this time, astronomy and astrology went hand in hand. Um, there was little distinction between understanding how the planets moved and things like that, and also, I, I'm going to use the term loosely, recognizing that that movement affected people's lives. Mm. Um, and he sent uh, the his work Mysterium out to a number of uh, different astronomers, and he sought opinions from many of them, including uh, Remarus Ursus, the the imperial mathematician to Rudolph II, and a bitter rival of Tycho Brahe. So Tycho Brahe was um, just kind of like a generation before uh, Kepler. He was like an older guy when Kepler was starting. Ursus did not reply directly, but did not appreciate Kepler's uh, communication. Uh, Tycho began corresponding with Kepler, starting with a harsh but legitimate critique of Kepler's system. And uh, through their letters, they discussed a broad range of astronomical problems and eventually kind of developed a relationship. In December of 1599, Tycho invited Kepler to visit him in Prague, and on January 1st, 1600, Kepler set off in the hopes that Tycho's patronage could solve the philosophical problems that he was having, as well as his social and financial ones. So in Prague in 1600, he met Tycho Brahe and uh, Tycho's assistants, and and they had a new observatory being constructed. He stayed as a guest and analyzed some of Tycho's observations of Mars. Kepler impressed him with his theoretical ideas and soon allowed him kind of in on the the data and the research that Tycho was uh, gathering. Political and religious difficulties in Graz made it hard for uh, Kepler to leave Graz permanently. And he sought an appointment as the mathematician to Archduke Ferdinand. Uh, Ferdinand uh, rejected it, but the letter that he drafted and the essay that he he wrote with it actually uh, helped him establish some some ideas about lunar movement. Mm. Kepler and his family were banished from Graz in August of 1600 because they would not convert to Catholicism. And they moved to Prague, where he was supported uh, initially by Tycho Brahe. In September of 1601, Tycho secured him a commission as a collaborator on the new project he had proposed to the Emperor, uh, Emperor Rudolf II. Uh, These are the Rudolphine Tablets, which is a star catalog and planetary tables 
eventually published in 1627, um, using observational data collected by Tycho Brahe and uh, Johannes Kepler. Uh, they were meant to replace the currently used Prutenic tables. Uh, however, Tycho Brahe died unexpectedly on October 24th, 1601, and Kepler was appointed his successor as the imperial mathematician uh, with the responsibility to complete his unfinished work. And he remained imperial mathematician for the next 11 years. In 1604, there was a, uh, a bright new evening star that Kepler began observing uh, systematically. It was the supernova of 1604 um, going into the astrology side this you know 1603 marked the beginning of a fiery trigon which is a, a the 800 year cycle of great conjunctions uh, astrologers associated the previous beginning of the cycle with the rise of charlemagne and the one before that with the birth of christ uh, and so there was much hubbub about this new supernova and the beginning of this new trigon and you know the rise of a of a new emperor or something like that Who's to say whether that was accurate or not? Mm. In 1611, political religious tensions in Prague came to a head as Emperor Rudolf was forced to abdicate to his brother Matthias. Uh, also in that year, Barbara Kepler contracted Hungarian spotted fever and began having seizures. Rudolf died in 1612, although uh, after the dust kind of settled, the new Holy Roman Emperor Matthias affirmed Kepler's position and salary as imperial mathematician. But Kepler and his family moved to Linz. He completed the Rudolphine tables there. During this time, his mother was also accused of witchcraft and uh, subsequently found guilty and executed, which is a, a kind of a story on its own. I'm not going to get into it, but it, it's it's interesting why and like what that went into. Mm -hmm. Barbara died in 1611, uh, and over the next two years, uh, Kepler courted a number of women, eventually choosing 24-year-old Susanna Rutinger. Uh, they had more children, and uh, reportedly, this was a happier marriage, so that's nice. Kepler was a very devout Christian. He believed that God created the cosmos in an orderly fashion, which caused him to attempt to determine and comprehend the law laws that govern the natural world, most profoundly in astronomy one of his writings says those laws of nature are within the grasp of the human mind god wanted us to recognize them by creating us after his own image so that we could share in his own thoughts which i like that i like that notion yeah i already mentioned uh as far as his astronomical works the mysterium cosmographicum from 1596 it was his first published defense of the copernican system and he in this first one he has the like sort of epiphany that let me see if I can explain this properly. If you take three-dimensional polyhedra, the five platonic solids, each of those shapes can be inscribed and circumscribed by spherical orbs. When you nest these solids, each encased in a sphere, within one another, this produces six layers corresponding to the six known planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And by ordering them selectively, Kepler found that the spheres could be placed at intervals corresponding to the relative size of each planet's path, assuming the planets circle the sun. So he, he did the, this kind of thought experiment with the platonic solids, and then upon like testing out the math, sort of discovered that it corresponds to the movement of the planets around the sun, and thus used it to support uh, heliocentrism. 
1621, he published an expanded second edition of Mysterium, uh, detailing in footnotes the corrections and improvements he had made in the previous 25 years. That extended research culminated in Astronomia Nova, which is a, a new astronomy, which includes the first two laws of planetary motion. Um, that's Kepler's laws of planetary motion. One is that the orbit of a planet is an ellipse with the sun at one of the two foci. And the second is a line segment joining a planet and the sun sweeps out equal areas during equal intervals of time. His uh, next work was the Epitome of Copernican Astronomy, or Epitome Astronomiae Copernicae. And this was kind of an, a textbook that was intended to cover all the fundamentals of heliocentric astronomy. This also includes some data and uh, information about the moon and the Medician satellites of Jupiter. Uh, he also completed the Rudolphine tables, which I mentioned before. Uh, it's not a textbook. It is a reference table. It actually didn't end up being published until 1827 because of disagreements with... Uh, Tycho Brahe's heir and, and like publishing requirements and everything. Mm -hmm. He was also into astrology. Uh, so he wrote a work called De Fundamentis, which is part of his bid to become the imperialist astronomer in 1601. Like the title can be translated as On Giving Astrology Sounder Foundations. Um, so in this, he describes the effects of the sun, moon, and planets in terms of their light and their influence upon humans. And he surmises that there are cyclic journeys in the humors of the Earth, and gives an example of the 19-year period of the moon, which sailors say affect tides. Uh, his other work is Tertius Interveniens, which is a, a series of published attacks and counterattacks with uh, against a guy named Hilasius Roslin um, about the importance of astrology after the supernova of 1604. What Kepler was saying was that there are excesses of astrology on one hand and overzealous rejection of it on the other. Uh, and so this is kind of like his compilation of his arguments from, from that series. Uh, he also wrote a piece, a work on music called Harmonise Mundi or uh, har like harmonies of the spheres or of the worlds. Uh, Kepler was convinced that the geometrical things have provided the creator with the model for decorating the whole world. This is from 1619, in which he attempted to explain the proportions of the natural world, particularly the astronomical and astrological aspects, in terms of music. The central set of harmonies were the music of the spheres, or the musica universalis, which had been studied by Pythagoras, Ptolemy, and others. And in fact, soon after publishing Harmonice Mundi, Kepler was embroiled in a priority dispute with a guy named Robert Flood, who, was, who had recently published his own harmonic theory. Uh, so this goes into, again, the regular polygons and regular solids uh, and kind of like how they can be stacked. And I don't want to get into much of it. I looked into it a little bit in like college because I was like, huh, harmony of the spheres. And it was it's it's all very like speculative science. And uh, it's just an interesting to know, like he was into the harmony of the spheres, hmm. the harmony yeah. of the worlds. He also wrote on optics, the Astronomie Pars Optica which uh, he kind of like worked through uh, Tycho Brahe's observations on Mars. Um, and it's that, that work is recognized as the foundation of modern optics. Th through that observation and everything, he, he started um, like improving telescopes, which Galileo was also kind of doing at the time. He also wrote Dioptrice, which in the first months of 1610, Galileo, using his powerful new telescope, had discovered four satellites orbiting Jupiter. 
Galileo sought the opinion of Kepler in order to partially, like partially in order to bolster the credibility of his observations and Kepler. Culp- Kepler responded enthusiastically, um, and he endorsed Galileo's observations and offered a wide range of speculations about the meaning and implications of Galileo's discoveries and telescopic methods. Not going to get super into it, but in this work, Kepler set out theoretical basis of double convex converging lenses and double concave diverging lenses, how they're combined to produce a Galilean telescope, and lots of things with telescopes. Just know that Kepler wrote things about telescopes. So those are a lot of his like major, major works uh, in the scientific realm. Um, he's obviously very important in the history of science. At the time, his laws of planetary motion were not immediately accepted. Uh, in fact, Galileo and Descartes completely ignored Astronomia Nova, um, and others objected in part. Like some took a middle ground, like, oh, well, you know, we'll accept elliptical orbits, but uh, the area law with uniform motion uh, we're not sure about that or like they they like accept some things and not others so mm-hmm. but we've come to look at kepler as you know by now extremely foundational uh his support of heliocentrism and his work in optics and and his laws of planetary motion like were extremely influential and, and foundational so there are there are things like the kepler mountains and the kepler track in new zealand uh, there are plenty of things and places named after him. Uh, lunar crater is named Kepler. There's a Kepler crater on Mars. There are things in plenty of uh, science fiction and other other works that refer to Kepler. And uh, Kepler is even uh, honored in the Episcopal Church liturgical calendar with a feast day hmm. on the 23rd of May shared with uh, Nicholas Copernicus. Good to know. Yeah. So there we go. That's a little bit about Kepler and the stuff he has done. Nice. I am very guilty of the uh, the thing you said where where I I know the names of a bunch of astronomers and can't differentiate <laughs> one from another at all. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah. So this was helpful. Well, good. I'm glad. Are you ready for a quiz? Uh yes. Let's go with right. yes. I'm ready. Okay. Uh, you don't need to know anything about Kepler in order to do this. However, uh, all of these questions are just kind of like associated to either Kepler, the name, or something I have talked about. So here we go. Question one. I am a professed fan of the McElroy family podcasts, including their actual play show, The Adventure Zone. In The Adventure Zone's second season, it was set in the fictional town of Kepler, West Virginia. Kepler is located near the real-life Green Bank Telescope in the NRQZ. Wi-Fi and other broadcasts are severely restricted by the U.S. government to allow the telescope and other military equipment to operate without interference. What does NRQZ stand for? Hmm. I do not know. Um, let's see. (laughs) My brain has come up with a guess, and it's a bad guess, but I can't get it to make a different guess. <laughs> I love that. It's wonderful whenever that happens. Okay. I am making the Z be for zone. So, so the bad guess my brain has come up with is no radio equipment zone. The Q is for the Q in equipment. Q is for <laughs> equipment. <laughs> Which 
if it turns out that that's what it was, I'm going to kick myself. Um, but I'm trying to force myself off of equipment being keyword <laughs> to other keywords. The Q could be for quiet. Quiet seems promising. Quiche. Quincy. <laughs> Quest. <laughs> Quest. Hmm. No. I mean, Quest fits with the, 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 the Dungeons and Dragons themes of the Adventure Zone, but I think... I'm trying... I'm not sure if NRQZ is a real-life thing. It is. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we're, so it's not going to be Quest. Yeah, I, figure, I figured it had to be a re- real-life thing because I, I don't think you would present me with... No. <laughs> an acronym... Of, of a, a made-up thing, thing from yeah. your favorite podcast to be like, what is this acronym for? Yeah. Um, qu- okay. N-R-Q-Z. Something, something, something. So, eh. radiation. Or it could be radiation. Or it could be radiation. Yeah, I'll even give you the N. The N is just national. Oh, okay. All right. Then let's make it the... National, I'm trying to decide between radio or radiation. Radio, radiation. Mm, Let's make it radio. National radio, quiet zone. That's what I'm going with. And it's a good thing you took that much time. It is the national radio quiet zone. You're kidding me. I am not kidding you. (laughs) There was was part of me that thought you were going to, at this point, be like, no, it's actually the the no radio equipment zone. The the queue is for equipment. The the queue is for equipment. The the military is not very smart. No, it's the national radio quiet zone. Yeah, you got it. Nice. Nice job. Thank you. Yeah, it's this square in eastern West Virginia that gets a little bit of that gets like part of Western Virginia and a little tiny sliver of Maryland that has severe restrictions on Wi-Fi and radio use, no cell phones, like Hmm. nothing because the green bank telescope is a radio telescope. And also there are other like military things that go on there that benefit from not having massive amounts of, you know, radio and and other kind of broadcast going on. So Mm -hmm. nice. Well done. You have 10 points. Question two. Two operas have been written about Johannes Kepler. The first, from 1957, is Die Harmonie der Welt by German composer Paul Hindemith. The second, from 2009, was composed by whom? This man had previously written two operas about physicists, 1979's Einstein on the Beach and 2002's Galileo Galilei. Uh, However, we may know him better for his music from the movies The Hours or The Truman Show. The Hours... Or the Truman Show, the hours, or the Truman Show, the hours, or the Truman Show. Uh oh, I don't think that I am getting the hint you're giving me, which is probably a very good and smart hint. Thank you um, for vote of confidence. Yeah, I'm trying to think of even like. A good guess. I do not know if he wrote operas, but Philip Glass is coming to mind. The years seem right, and 
I, something's pinging, but I don't know what. So I'm going with that. Philip Glass is correct. <sighs> How? Uh, you, I mean, it might have been the hours or the Truman Show. It might have been the hours, the hours or the Truman Show. That is, um, yeah. I don't think yes. I would have been able to say with any confidence that I knew Philip Glass wrote for either of those. But well, it, hey, somehow your brain had it. Yeah, in there. it was in there somewhere. Nicely done. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> Like, I know Einstein on the Beach. That's also from 1979, so that's long enough ago that it, like, gets into textbooks now for, like, when I was in college. But I didn't know about his more recent operas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you know that Philip Glass is Ira Glass's cousin? I did not, but that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because everybody with the same last name is related. Yeah. As I have covered before. Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, All right. So, question three. A long-running webcomic by Mike Krahulik and Jerry Holkins, ostensibly focused on video game culture and criticism, features the main characters named Tycho Brahe and Jonathan Gabriel. The success of the comic has led to the establishment of the Child's Play charity and multiple yearly gaming expos known as PAX. What is the title of that webcomic, which harkens back to the good old days of gaming? Is it Penny Arcade? It is Penny Arcade. Nice. I thought for sure of, of any of them, that would be the one that's like, oh, I don't know this. Oh, no. They uh, they got themselves into some trouble with the feminists a while ago, so they are on... Oh, did they? Oh, yeah. How Whoa. was that? Hmm? When was that? Um, and how was that? I missed it. August 2010. Oh, August 2010. Okay. So that was a while ago. It back. was a while ago. Okay. They have... I, that that might even be before I started reading. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, <laughs> that's a shame to hear. Yeah, uh, but if they've if they've recovered well, I will give them the benefit of the doubt. I my yeah, I get in, unless unless it's just performative or they're just faking it, which I don't yeah. think they are. They probably took that criticism to heart, whatever yeah. it was. <laughs> anyway, nice job, yeah. you. Are 30 for 30 right now. Yay! All right, question four. I knew some obscure sh- <laughs> The Rudolphine tablets were dedicated to Emperor Rudolph II. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was not an emperor, but rather a marketing ploy by what now-defunct Chicago-based retailer? Um, I don't know. And I can add that it is like a two-word brand name darn it well that eliminated the only guess that i had in my brain which was woolworth's um let me see if i can come up with a better guess two word my helpful brain is like the sears tower sears is a retailer like no 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 i don't think so um sears is a retailer yeah no i know i know it is i I don't think it's don't think it's defunct and I don't think it's, it certainly doesn't have a second name that goes with it. I'm not bringing anything to mind. All right. It doesn't fit the clue, but I'm going with my original guess of Woolworths. It is Montgomery Ward. Montgomery Ward. Maybe I've heard of that, but I'm cer- I certainly was not going to bring it to mind. Yeah. I'm going to guess living most of your life out east things like macy's and the other like big new york based retailers Mm kind of kind of held sway yeah 
whereas out west montgomery ward was able to really flourish yeah yeah, uh, montgomery ward uh in 1939 i believe created rudolph the red-nosed reindeer uh because they used to purchase and then like give away coloring books at christmas time and then they decided that it would be cheaper to just make their own coloring books and rudolph the red-nosed reindeer was part of that and they hired a guy to make a song about it advertised for montgomery ward Hmm. so that's where that's where rudolph comes from uh, okay, question five. Pythagoras was considered by Kepler, Copernicus, and other astronomers to be extremely influential on the heliocentric model. Pyth- Pythagoras was an interesting and probably problematic dude, but I'm not asking about that. The Pythagorean theorem, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, is used for what shape in Euclidean geometry? I presume it's a triangle. That yeah, I need is... you to be more specific. Oh, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a, it's to f- the, it's the, it's a right triangle. A it squared, is a right yeah, triangle. Yeah, C squared is the hypotenuse. Or C, yes. yeah, with, a, with C being the hypotenuse. Indeed, that is accurate. Nice. All right, you are at 40 points. And our final category is, ooh, how do we call this? Do I, do I want to be clever? Or do I want to just be straightforward? I'll, I'll be cheeky. Okay. I'll call the final category do not go gentle. Um I don't really know what you're doing here, but let's go ahead and wager 35. Okay. Final question. The Kepler Space Telescope was officially retired in 2018. To shut it down, it was sent what one-word command? Margaret Wise Brown may have included the telescope in her most famous book if it had been around then. Um, oh, I see what you did with the category title. Good night. It is good night. <laughs> I'm reading this article on like the Spe- Kepler Space Telescope and I read that part and I get like emotional. I'm like, oh. Because <laughs> it started its mission in 2009 and it like did a bunch of stuff and there are thousands of cataloged like potential exoplanets and you know and and a various number inhabitable zones and it's observed asteroids and whatever it's done all this stuff and then i read like and in 2018 it was given the good night command and blah 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 and i was like oh after running out of fuel and it had it had finished its mission mm. it's like oh man mm. <laughs> oh and it's still up there it's just hanging out yeah so, hey, you got 75 points. Yay. Nice job. Thank you. Um, this was a fun deep dive and a great quiz. Um, so thank you. And uh, thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or review if you wouldn't mind doing so. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who watch Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.